Okay, the reading today is from page 280 of your Bibles, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 11. And it's about Saul rescuing the city of Jabesh. Has everyone got the page? Great. Let's read together. Uh, Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you, and so bring disgrace on all of Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days so that we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen and he asked, What is wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? Then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. He took a pair of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, This is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out together as one. When Saul mustered them at Bezek, the men of Israel numbered 300,000, and those of Judah 30,000. They told the messengers who had come, Say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, By the time the sun is hot tomorrow, you will be rescued. When the messengers went and reported this to the men of Jabesh, they were elated. They said to the Ammonites, Tomorrow we will surrender to you, and you can do to us whatever you like. The next day Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. People then said to Samuel, Who was it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we may put them to death. But Saul said, No one will be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingship. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and the Israelites held a great celebration. Where we begin, and uh, thank you very much, Rob, for uh, leading uh, us. Slight preview of uh, Rob, he's hoping to come and work uh, in our church in Dagenham from September onwards, um, and uh, when he finally gets uh, married to uh, Hannah, uh, which could well be uh, February next year, they'll be living in the house right next to the church, so it's a kind of a welcome to Dagenham for Rob as well, and it's a real joy. Let me tell you, he's been working his socks off right through the weekend. Uh, serving about a thousand people. We just come back from the weekend, a thousand Christians, 
uh, and um, and so he's the only one who's allowed to go to sleep tonight uh, while I'm talking. Um, but he worked because he's he's hard to impress. Uh, so uh, he'll pinch himself all all the way through. Right. Well, here's the big question. After reading one Samuel chapter eleven, uh, why come to church to learn about people fighting each other? More to the point. How does that help us as a church? We are trying to help people to become Christians on the Beckentry estate. How does this part of the Bible help us in any way, shape or form in that work that we want to do? And the answer is, this part of the Bible does not answer any of those questions. 1 Samuel chapter 11 doesn't answer any of those questions unless you were here last week and you heard us talk about 1 Samuel chapter 10, or, better still, if you were here the week before and heard us talk about 1 Samuel chapter 9, because this part of the Bible is all about the people of God getting their very first king. And it's a bit of a long, drawn-out process. In chapter 9, you read this man called Saul has a private um, string of things happen to him, that signaled him that he's going to be the next king of Israel, the first king of Israel. And in chapter 10, verse 1, at the end of that process, he has a private anointing by the prophet Samuel to say that he's going to be the king. Then there is the public proclamation that he is the king in chapter 10, verse 24. And now the whole of Israel says, long live the king. But we don't get to the coronation until chapter 11, verse 15. So it's a bit of a lengthy uh, time where this is going to happen. And before the coronation, this battle is God's way of showing that they have the right guy. That Saul is fit for purpose as God's rescuer for his people. Okay? That's the reason why the battle is there in the Bible. It's not just a random uh, fight that someone's picked. But there is a man who starts a fight. His uh, name is Nahash. Let's call him uh, Nahash the Nasty. Okay? Because he is nasty if you look at the first three verses. That's why you don't want to you know, play the kind of yabu game with him and go boo, hiss, he's a villain, isn't he? Actually, he's too serious a villain to treat him lightly in that kind of way. Look at uh, his uh, cruelty and self-confidence uh, in the first uh, three verses. Uh, Nahash went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. All the men of Jabesh said, make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite said, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you and bring disgrace on all of Israel. He's like a cat playing with a mouse, isn't he? He's so confident. They're not going to get any help. So let's make them stew for a week. If they want to stew for a week, okay, we'll play that game. He's let, he says, willing to let them uh, go for help. Now, that little picture, just in those four verses, will tell you, the Bible tells you all you need to know about Nahash the Nasty. Don't need to go anywhere else for any other information outside the Bible. 
But it is interesting when we can find out that he has he's done this kind of thing before. So that around about 1956, uh, they found uh, some scrolls uh, that date back this time. Um, they call the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, and in Cave 4, uh, a scroll gives us this information. Now, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, had been oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites grievously, gouging out the right eye of each one of them and allowing Israel no deliverer. No men of the Israelites who were across the Jordan remained whose right eye, Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had not gouged out. But 7,000 men had escaped from the Ammonites and entered into Jabesh Gilead. Okay, so that gives you an impression that that's the kind of person he is. Now, it doesn't fully answer the question about why war is necessary to stop this kind of evil. But I'm hoping that by the time you get to verse 11 and see what happens to him, that you have a lot less sympathy uh, given what he has done. But what we really need to do is to see how this invasion fits into the big picture of God giving his people a new king. And this brings the new king into our thinking because Jabesh Gilead is part of his kingdom. So there would have been people from Jabesh Gilead who were shouting in chapter 10, at verse 27, God saved the, uh, God saved the king. They knew they had a king. But what's interesting is that when Nahash the nasty turns up in verse 1, what they do is they say, okay, we'll be subject to you. We're happy for you to be our king. It's only when Nahash ups the stakes a bit and says, okay, fair enough, well, give me a right eye as well, in which case. And they say, oh, at that point, they kind of go, on, on second thoughts, maybe we ought to get some help, see if there's someone who might be able to uh, get us out of our jam. In other words, they don't go straight to Saul and say, we need you, you're the new king. In fact, when you see what happens, they do this whistle-stop tour of all of Israel. They don't go straight to Saul at all. And even when they finally get to Gibeah, where he lives, they don't go straight to him. They go to the town and they say, this is our predicament. And Saul, coming in from his fields with his ox, has to ask what's going on. Then they tell him. You see what I'm meant when Ruth was going from person to person but not actually going to the person who would help and that's what's happening here and um, uh, you notice that Saul is coming back from working in the fields so it seems like although there's been a proclamation that he's the king life has pretty much gone back to normal as for everybody they're not looking to him as the king and he's certainly not working as a king. He's just gone back to what he did before, plying his field. Now, that just goes to show us that when God gives his people a king, they don't look to him. 
And it's only when disaster strikes that their steps finally take them there after they've looked everywhere else. And really the point for us to take from that is that we are exactly the same. These guys are in the Bible to show us how weak we are. Just so rarely do we turn to God first. And even if we have preachers who stand up and say, go to God first and cast your burdens unto Jesus for he cares for you, lift up high and lower and uh, Satan goes, tomorrow morning we won't be going to him. It's just the way we are. We're perverse people. And we need to be honest about that's the way we are. But this is the way God is. God still delivers his people. Let me stress again, no one's asked Saul. You might think that they might, when Saul comes in from the fields and says, hey, why is everybody crying? You might expect them to pick up the hint at that point and say, hold a minute, you're the new king, aren't you? Hey, you could help us, could you? But they don't even ask him then. So in verse 6, you will see God steps in. All Saul does is hear them answer his question. When Saul heard their words, then God steps in. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. Now, again, we can read those words straight out of the Bible without batting an eyelid, can't we? The Spirit of God came upon him and he burned with anger. Hey, have you noticed something surprising about that? The Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he burned with anger. What's surprising about that sentence? That's right. The Spirit of God comes upon him and he's now burning with anger. Hey, hold me. Didn't we... Do we normally associate the Spirit of God with love and joy and peace? And the, spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and, and anger. Because if you've got a God of love, then you will expect a God of love to be angry when those he loves are under the cosh, wouldn't you? If uh, Ruthie was really in trouble, let's say her dad saw her outside being bullied by someone on the street, uh, and he went out, do you think he'd go out to defend her and do something and take the bully on? Do you think he might just do that? Why do you think that? Because he's a violent man? No, because he's a loving man. And for him not to be angry really shows that he doesn't love. For God not to be angry is really proof that God doesn't love and there's no proof like that because God, when his spirit comes and those who he loves are being hurt where then anger is the response of God's king under God's spirit. And now God, having got people got Saul angry in verse 7 does something else that's surprising when he steps in. Look at verse 7. The te uh, terror of the Lord fills the people. See? 
Saul takes power of oxen, cast them into pieces, and sent them sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel, proclaiming, This is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Saul and Samuel. And terror uh, of the Lord falls on them. Now, again, you might just want to ask, should I feel terror of the Lord? Should we feel like that towards God? And the answer is no. Whatever you've done to fail him, if you turn to him for his deep forgiveness, then you will know his great love. But if we ignore his instruction to love, then especially if it's a failure to love people that God wants to save, then there's a rightness in feeling his terror. Because God is the one who creates that uh, feeling uh, to keep us from uh, being callous. And if God intends to rescue his people and our business is to kind of carry on as normal and let's not worry about them over there, then God will be angry with us. To give you an idea why they might do that, I might need a map. Uh, this is uh, Jabesh Gilead here. It's such a small place, they're not quite sure it's there, but let's say it's there. That's where they guess. Okay. Now, what happened when God's people came from Egypt and lived in their new country? That's the River Jordan there, up down, River Jordan, okay? Now, they kind of came in that way, and most of them lived on this side, on the, on the left side of the Jordan. But three tribes, Gad and uh, 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 Reuben, uh, sorry, Reuben's there, Gad's there, and Jabesh Gilead was part of God's people that stayed on the wrong side of the river, if you like. So because of that cut-off, it was easy to say, hey, they're not really part of us. Anyone touches us over here, and that's a different story. But uh, really, these guys, they chose to live over there. Well, it's their lookout if something happens. It's uh, on the other side of the river. They're not really part of us. We don't need to go and rescue them. God says, I love them and you are going to rescue them. And Paul, uh, Saul says, this is what's going to happen to their oxen if you don't... What, what's going to happen to your oxen is, what's going to happen to, is what happened here if you don't go. So in the end they go, not because they're particularly worried... They're probably still worried about what the Amalekite might do to them, but they're more worried about what Saul would do to them. And... That's the reason why we would care. And not so much worried about uh, what uh, the enemy will think, but what would happen to us uh, with the God that we love um, if uh, we don't go to respond uh, when he wants to deliver people uh, uh, using us to do that. So when it comes to obeying God, it should be love 
that is the great driver. It should be our joy to take God's deliverance to people who need it. But if that's not our motive, then opting out isn't an option. Fear should be uh, part of uh, our reckoning. Um, and uh, we see how God is driving along that with uh, uh, a, re a, a great uh, um, indication of his love, in this case by making Saul angry, and equally uh, making people fear the consequences of not going. And in the end, it is God doing the delivering of his people. And that's what Saul says at the end in the summary in verse 13. He says, this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Not me. God is the one who did that. Even though they weren't actually looking for him very much, God did it anyhow. He is the one who made it happen. And therefore, through that, it is God who crowns his king. Now, human hands, Samuel is the one who actually does the crowning, but um, uh, Saul is the man who is recognized as God's great delivering king. Now, nasty Nahash might have thought that he was unstoppable, and verse 10 might have lulled him into a false sense of security uh, when the, he saw the messengers come into the city, and next moment he's summoned in to say, right, okay, we surrender, do with us what you want. Where he could put two and two together and say, well, obviously those messengers have come back, they found no help whatsoever, there's no one to deliver them. And yet, as he went to bed that night, thinking of what... Uh, atrocity he will commit against God's people to humble Israel as he went to bed that night to dream of uh, the cruelty he will inflict the next day that night Saul and his army marched through the night the 20 miles from uh, Gibeah to, um, uh, to uh, uh, catch up with uh, uh, Jabesh Gilead and then um, in the last watch of the night, it says in verse 11, or eyes of the British army, uh, we would say uh, in the first light, uh, the attack began and it was slaughter uh, in verse 11. So it turns out that uh, Nahash, uh, who was apparently in charge of all the uh, action at the start, is only a pawn in the story to show that God's king is fit for purpose. So the very first thing on people's minds after victory is get out those people who in chapter 10, verse 27, the last verse of chapter 10, there were some guys who said, uh, Saul's not up to it. He can't be the king. He won't deliver us. And um, uh, there's no safety with God's king. Well, they're the ones uh, that people say, bring them here, and uh, we want uh, to kill them. Now, that uh, is uh, uh, amazing, because Saul then says, no, verse 13, no one dies today, even though anyone would say that they deserved it. And what Saul is introducing us to, this king of God, is introducing us to a Bible word that you read a lot of, a Bible word called grace, which means you don't get what you should get by way of punishment. 
And so amazingly, in verse 13, grace kicks in. And God's king will keep safe those who deserve death. So the ones who were the first to say, um, we shouldn't have Saul as our king, they are the ones with the biggest reasons to be grateful that Saul is the kind of king that he turns out to be. They've got more reasons to thank God for Saul, for sparing their lives, than anybody else in the country. Now what can we take home from all of that? I probably should have uh, not been carried away, but I should have told you in verse 11 that God's king is powerful and that also in verse 13, God's king is very gracious. Now, I'll explain why this is important for us to understand. What is the take-home for us? Now, maybe you're someone who lives in our state and all this Christianity thing is very new to you and you're just wondering uh, why anyone would uh, want to uh, uh, think about this God that Christians want to follow. Well, how will this passage help you? Can I ask you to just take yourself and put yourself in the people of Jabesh Gilead? Okay, think of yourself and your situation as uh, part of that uh, uh, turning crisis. Uh, there's an enemy called Satan who wants to wreck your life and, humi and humiliate you. Now, he won't present it like that. In the Garden of Eden, he uh, uh, promised the good, good times to Adam and Eve. But the intention is to destroy you far worse than Nahash was there to destroy people. And what would be really helpful to do is to let Nahash help you to see the invisible enemy who would really want to uh, hate you and destroy you. It is important for us to realize that is true and to realize equally that there is a God who can rescue us when we're powerless against an enemy like that. There is a new king who can do that. Now, that probably will need explaining a bit more, so it'd be great to chat afterwards, but we'd love you to know his safety in the way the people in Jabesh Gilead did. It'd be really great to see how that safety is needed because the enemy is so strong and so vicious and has you in his sights. Take that seriously uh, and uh, uh, then you will see the need uh, for God's help. What happens if you've been to church all your life? Uh, you want to see the people of Israel. When you read the people of Israel in the Old Testament, think church. Because that's what they are. They are God's people. Now you can see from what Saul had to do to threaten them that it is very easy to be taken up with uh, living and it's very easy to ignore the people that the enemy wants to blind. And we can identify with that as well. Love should take us to them that's why our church wants to go out to the people in this estate. 
But if love doesn't take us there, fear certainly should. Because if God's heart is to seek and to save the lost, we would be, as Christians, deliberately disobedient if we weren't uh, wanting to be part of his rescue. Let me tell you, going to that estate, week after week as we do, is really hard work. But it's much harder if we stay at home. Because there is a God we will have to face. Now, most of us can work out that it's quite serious to blatantly disobey one of God's commands, like don't murder. But if it is blatantly obvious that we take on God if we break his commandments in that kind of way, what's the difference between breaking his command, what we call the Great Commission, to go and make disciples? Do we dare break that command with any greater ease, thinking that it's somehow less important? Isn't the command of God a command of God? Don't we need to be uh, understanding his greatness uh, as we want to obey him? Now, it's easy to say that uh, well, the Jabesh Gilead people were across the border. They're not really part of our group. And it's so easy for churches to live with a little uh, uh, cozy in-crowd and not to be looking across the river, if you like. But we don't uh, be doing that. Jesus said he had sheep that did not belong to this fold that would in the end follow him. We've got to go and find them and bring them to him, be part of his uh, rescue. It's a warning to us not to disobey. And Jabesh Gilead points out that warning. But the third thing that we need to understand is to work out how all this talk of battle helps us as a church going out to meet people on the Baconshire estate. How does this help us? Well, what we need to do is to see that warfare in the Old Testament is evangelism in the New Testament. Okay? Now, Christians are not jihadists. We're not out to kill people. We don't take the Old Testament warfare and repeat it with swords strapped to our sides. Our warfare is different. And that's why I think I'd be really grateful if you could do one little Bible turn for me to... uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'll get there and I'll give you uh, the, the page number and we're nearly finished. But I've got to show you this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that's on page 1161. Page 1161. Uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is is uh, 1,165. Okay. Uh, So, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and look at verse 3. Uh, Paul says, For we, though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. Okay. So we're not going to put bombs to us and blow anybody up. Because of verse 4, the weapons we fight with 
are not the weapons of the world. But it is the way Christians approach uh, non-Christian strongholds and, uh, 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 and uh, 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 seek them. On the contrary, uh, our weapons, in other words, have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So Paul's using war language to speak of teaching the rule of God's king, to take every thought captive to Jesus. He's the king and we want to get people thinking along those lines. So it's evangelism that causes people to respond to Jesus as king when the enemy wants to destroy them. That's the way we rescue people today from Satan and uh, his uh, 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 strategy. So the proclamation of the gospel, evangelism, is war. Now it's not how we normally like to think of our evangelistic efforts. Instead, generally in Christian circles... The language of the business world has replaced the battlefield in our thinking. We go to sell a product, not uh, to fight a battle. We are marketers, we're not soldiers. We have merchandise, not weapons. We face potential customers, not enemy. We form a business plan, not a battle plan. But don't let tonight go to waste, whatever you do. As you become part of our church, think of our work as warfare. You've seen how God's King is able to deliver, to seek and save the lost. And Saul is the first king on a road that will ultimately lead to the king that God brings to seek and save the lost. This is just a little foretaste of what the greatest king in the world will do to those under uh, enemy uh, tyranny. Now, you'd expect the enemy to fight back. He does. And we have felt the bomb blast of that ourselves, I think, as a church. But you've seen how God's king will win. And that is what will keep us going as a church. God has appointed a king. Jesus is God's powerful and gracious king. Isn't it such a joy for us to love him so much that we join the ranks and we go out to seek and save the lost the way it happened in the story. Let's pray that God will help us to uh, do that. And then we'll have a time of questions or comments or anything you'd like to say. I, Heavenly Father, we thank you that what happened 3,000 years ago has such up-to-date relevance for us today. Please help us to look for the rescue of your King, the Lord Jesus, and to be a part of his rescue to others. For the glory of his great name we pray. Amen. Amen.